All right, so for, for those of you that, you know, it's summertime, so there's a lot of like ebb and flow with people uh, coming and going. Uh, but we began uh, a couple weeks ago uh, a new sermon series, <clears throat> which will take us through the summer, probably a little bit even into the autumn, uh, the times and life of Jesus. And so this is trying to take a look at, yes, the life of Jesus, but also the historical time and context of what is going on at that time. So we have a little deeper understanding of the ministry of Jesus and how it impacts us. And so today uh, we are going to... Um, go to the next step of the storyline of the life and times of Jesus, which uh, we're going to be coming out of Mark chapter 6. Um, we'll begin in, well, I guess we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Great question. Where did this man get these things, his ability to teach the way that he's teaching? How did he get it? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Or not his sisters here with us. So they were offended at him. So anyway, we have a little inkling into, yes, Jesus' childhood. What we have here is see Jesus is a carpenter. He has several brothers and a couple sisters. And he has a childhood. And so what we're going to do today is, to the best we can, we're going to look into the childhood of Jesus. Uh, the boy, like the wood that he is fashioning, is being prepared for his destiny. And so what's really bizarre here is we think about all of this. Um, it's kind of strange. Uh, Sharon and I were just talking in the back. What we know about Jesus is three years of his life mostly. right? Everything that we teach out of Jesus' life is during his three years of ministry. The guy was only in ministry for three years we say approximately between the ages of 30 and 33, and then he is crucified, resurrected, and ascends to heaven. So everything that we teach out of Jesus is three years of his life. But yet he had 30 years of preparation. Right there, I mean, I can just drop the mic and we all go home. Like, how long have you been preparing to do something in life, whether it's for the Lord or whatever it may be? If the Son of God needed 30 years of preparation, you know, we might need a little more, Right? And that could be a nice little like, piece of just relaxation for you in, in, in some regard. But you know, it's kind of strange that such little attention is put on the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Um, why is it strange? Well, one is just that you know, childhood is a very influential part of one's life. It's a time where your personality is being formed. Your likes, your dislikes your hesitancies, your strengths, your weaknesses, all that kind of stuff is being formed. I mean, childhood is an amazing, amazingly complicated and important time period. But yet such little is spoken about Jesus' childhood. Um, and childhood and the influence of one's childhood, one's early years, um, is influential both in a physical way but also a spiritual way. So physically when you're a child, right, you're growing, but when you are a child as a new believer... Spiritually, your growth, I'm telling you right now, a lot of the junk that you may have theologically or your view of God and all that kind of stuff, most likely came out of your first five years of being saved. Your bad theology, if you have it, which we all have some element of bad theology, it probably came from that time period when you first got saved and you're really hungry and you're very impressionable. So if you just think about right now, where were you when you got saved? What kind of church were you in? What was the structure like? What was the pastor preaching and teaching? What were people like? And I'm telling you, there's probably a lot of good things that were given to you in that transition. But there's also probably some hang-ups that were given to you. So just take a moment and think. Where were you when you first got saved? And what was your church environment like? How did the preacher preach? What did he preach on? How did people interact with you? What did you learn during that time period? So it's very, very important both physically, biologically, and spiritually. All right. 
so the question. What do you guys uh, know about Jesus' life prior to ministry? Just a couple, couple things. We'll see how we can brainstorm together. Today's going to be a little bit more of a teaching kind of day than a preaching day. Okay, wasn't born in a hospital, good. Born in a manger, right, in Bethlehem. Escaped and went to Egypt, good. Yeah, by the age of 12, he's like wandering around. His parents don't even know where he is. Yeah, for a couple days. Yeah, so his family settles in. A not-so-great town. We're not really sure if it was necessary because of crime or if it was just like this podunk, rural, good-for-nothing, whatever town. Right? Well, that's pretty good because that's pretty much what we know about him. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, it never explicitly says that Joseph died, but we infer that, you know, we hear of Mary, we hear of his brothers and sisters, but Joseph we never really hear of again. Um, so there's a very good chance that he most likely passed away uh, during Jesus' earlier years, we, w- we would imagine. Good. It's all good stuff. So for those of you who may not be uh, as accustomed to the narrative of, of the story, let's just take a little moment and let's just talk about some of the things of, of his life, right? So first, we all know from the Christmas story uh, that he was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, right? Um, when he's born... Um, his, his father Joseph receives a dream, and he, he, the, in, in the dream, the angel speaks to him and says, you need to go to Egypt. He needs to go to Egypt because Herod is looking for this Messiah that everyone's talking about, and they want to kill all of the, for, essentially, uh, boys uh, that are around. So they, they flee to Egypt. They're hanging out there. Uh, that also fulfills a prophecy, Hosea 11.1, 1, that says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's out of Egypt he's called the nation of Israel during the bondage of, of Egypt. But also he's called his singular son from Egypt. So there's a fulfillment of prophecy that's right there. Has to go to Egypt to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Um, they get back. Joseph has another dream. And in this dream it is, all right, Herod's son is still out trying to figure out what's going on and trying to tamper down any kind of Messiah. So you cannot settle in the town or of the, of the area of your family, which is Judea. You need to get out of Judea because everyone knows the Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah, from Judea. So you need to get out of there. So he goes. Joseph takes his wife, his eldest son, and they go up to Galilee. Right? Uh, to a town called Nazareth. Now, there's a couple cool things with that. One is the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Nazareth, uh, as uh, the Hebrew is, it's Netzer. Netzer is uh, where we get Nazareth from. Netzer is um, a biblical Hebrew word, uh, which means a shoot. So it's the place of the shoot or a sapling. Uh, we see fulfillment of this uh, in a Messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem of Jesse. Jesse's lineage of, of, of Jesus. And a branch, a netzer, once again, shall grow out of its roots. And out of its roots, right, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. All these messianic prophecies start to come out of, out of the one who is going to come out of the netzer. So we have a prophecy right here, is that coming from Nazareth, coming out of a, a place called the, the shoot, there is that prophecy that's there. And, you know, some of you are like, yeah, whatever. doesn't relate to me, but this, these are important things. These are things that had to happen in order for he, Jesus, to be the Messiah, he had to fulfill all of the Messianic prophecies. So every little thing had to be dealt with. Everything from coming out of Egypt, I've called my son, Netzer, the shoot, everything has to be there. So there's the prophetic that needs to happen, but there's also an encouragement to you, of course, uh, about his early years. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 46 says, Can any good come out of Nazareth? 
So what we have here is Joseph needs to go to Nazareth, needs to raise his son there. And when Jesus starts to come onto the scene and, and he starts to teach, people are like, who is this guy? Who is this carpenter? And he's from Nazareth? What good could ever come out of that place? Because it was this rural podunk town where there's not much going on. There's a village. There's not much going on. It's like somewhere in the middle of Maine, right? Um, this is encouragement for us. Uh, because what we have here is, are you in a Nazareth place yourself? The Son of God could have been born in a manger, could have been raised in his formative years in this little podunk, junky town that no one cares about, how much impact can it be for us if you are living physically in a Nazareth town or if you are spiritually in a Nazareth place? A tough place right now. Can any good come out of your situation? Yes, the Son of God can be revealed in that situation. Amen? So what we have here is this. Why did Jesus have to go to Nazareth? Why did he have to be raised up in Nazareth? One, to fulfill prophecy, and also this, an encouragement to you. The Nazareth place that you may be living in right now, or you may have been in your past, is the training ground for being molded into the likeness of the Father. Jesus needed to be molded more and more into the likeness of the Father during his formative years when living in Nazareth. And it's the same thing for you and I. We're going through a hard time. We're living in a, maybe a physically rough neighborhood. Whatever the experience may be, it's this type of Nazareth experience. But what I'm saying to you is that that's where Jesus comes from. And if it is good enough for the Son of God, it's going to be good enough for you and I. Right? So hopefully you can be encouraged with that. So... That's a little bit about his early years, but let's, uh, let's, let's continue with this theme and let's, um, let's talk about his family. One, uh, we see that his family, Mary and Joseph, are devout. Okay? Uh, what we see is uh, in Luke chapter 2, we see that it was, uh, I believe, it's during the time of Passover, I believe it is. Uh, and what happens is, um, Mary and Joseph are going to take Jesus uh, to Jerusalem, which you were supposed to do during Passover. Uh, and they're going to circumcise Jesus on the eighth day. It says during the time of circumcision, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem. He is circumcised and his name is revealed. Okay? Because in the Old Testament it says that the sons are to be circumcised as a bearing of the covenant of Abraham. So we see that they're devout. Uh, at the age of 12, although the word itself is not used, uh, most people infer this is exactly what's happening. Uh, it looks like Jesus is being uh, or doing his bar mitzvah. Has any of you, have any of you ever been to a bar mitzvah, make a friend or whatever, right? So in America, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah occurs at the age of 13. But in Israel, even today, it's done at the age of 12. What it means here is, is that you are a son or a daughter of the commandment. It's the point of accountability. At age 13 in America, age 12 in Israel, that's when a, a boy or girl is now held to the responsibilities of being an adult. You are in charge of your own spirituality. You've had 12 years of mommy and daddy telling you about synagogue, or in our case, telling you about church. If you don't want to be a part of this, you are old enough to make your decision. You are now a son of the covenant if you choose, or a daughter. It's up to you now. Point of accountability. And so this is what's happening in Jesus's time. If you take a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 41, we see what's going on here. A very funny and weird telling. It says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, which was a commandment that you were supposed to do. So we see that they were devout. And when he was 12 years old, this is where the scholars think it most likely was because of his bar mitzvah, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. He's a 12-year-old boy in the capital. He's lingering around and his family does, they don't even know it. They're like, oh, maybe he's with the cousins or with the extended family, whatever. 
It's a lot to say right there. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. They went a whole day without even knowing him. Knowing where he was. And then sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Guys, that's like you dropping your kid off in Manhattan. Like, yo, you're 12. Go, go hang out with your friends and family. And yeah, we're going to get going. Everyone knows the time to leave. We're all leaving. And a day later, you're like, uh-oh, where is he? Where is she? Now, so it was that after three days, they're looking for him for another three days. So now we're at four days. They have no idea where their son is. It's like, how many times do you, like, you text your kids? Like, where are you? How come you didn't pick up? Four days go by. And they found him in the temple. Oh, I was a good Jewish boy. Sitting in the temple. Sitting in the midst of the rabbis or the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished as his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my, my father's business? Um, I think if I would have said that to my parents, I probably would have been smacked across the face. <laughs> Don't be asking about me. You know where I am. I'm at, you know, at 12? We have a little, we, I know, this is kind of comical, but we, we see a couple of important things from this. One, I mean, you've got to deal with it with your own kids, but we see at the age of 12, there's a lot of leeway that's been given. I teach high school kids, they say over and over and over again, one of the things they wish they had were, was one more responsibility and one second more independence. And we talk about, like, you can't have independence until you bear responsibility. If you bear responsibility, then your parents will start to give you some level of independence. You can't have independence without responsibility. That's a very important spiritual factor for us. Um, but what happens here is there's, there's a little bit of a leeway that's given to the kid kind of figure himself out. The parents are not smothering them with religion. They're not smothering them with a bunch of stuff. Anyone here want to confess and say, yeah, I smothered my kids with faith? I smothered my kids with religion? If there's no one in here that raises their hand, I'm, I'm just going to like die laughing because it, it is like the most common thing in the body. Maybe we should ask the kids. Any kids here would like to raise their hand and say, my parents smothered me with religion. All right. So the parents didn't raise their hands, but the kids, some of the kids did. You may want to keep that into a barometer here. Now, why are they not smothering Jesus? They're like, well, he's the son of God. We know we received this dream and all this kind of stuff. Come on. Parents receive prophecies about their kids all the time. Oh, my kid, the Lord talked. God is going to do this with my kid. You just hop on him. No, you got to you got to give them a little leeway with this. I mean, obviously, it depends on each individual kid. Uh, I'm not trying to tell you how to necessarily raise your kids. But what is astonishing here is that when they approach Jesus, and Jesus responds, you know what I've been doing. I've been attending to my father's house. They do not rebuke him. They do not punish him. They acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is in him. And this is a very, very important part that I think all of us need to know whether you have children or not. There is no junior varsity Holy Spirit. You as a parent or I as a leader, you don't have a greater measure of the Holy Spirit than a three-year-old. When the Holy Spirit acts, the Holy Spirit acts. And you can hear and you can learn and you can understand with people who are newborn babies in the faith. And you can learn and experience the Holy Spirit from literal newborn babies. The Holy Spirit is in. Come on, your parents know, right? Kids say something to me. One minute they're like, all like, rah, right? And the next minute they say something, you're like, the Lord is on that. And I'm telling you, as a kid who grew up in faith, when parents acknowledge that, it encourages the personality, the spiritual personality of the child. And it's the same thing as a 30 or 40-year-old who comes to faith and that they're able to step and grow in that. Okay? So, the other thing that happens, is here, happens here is that he astonishes the rabbis. He astonishes the teachers. Who is this kid? Who is this 12-year-old kid, this carpenter, who's asking all these questions, who's teaching us things. The rabbis are like, what the heck? 
And that's important about his childhood. Because a guy of this promise, what does he choose to do with it? He chooses not to go to a seminary. He chooses not to go to higher levels of education. What does he choose to do? To go work for his father. A boy of that type of promise, of intellect, I'm telling you if you read in between the lines, when that boy Jesus left to be his parents, those rabbis were probably going to his parents saying, this kid has unbelievable promise. Like, in Israel culture and Jewish culture, everyone learns how to read, everyone goes to school, even women in ancient times, which is unheard of. Women would go to school as well, young girls, until about this age. And then it's, do you go and learn the, the, the craft of your parents? Or do you go to higher levels of education? And someone of this promise absolutely would have went to higher levels of education and rabbinical schools and colleges and learning all this kind of stuff. But for the Son of God, it was more important for him to go and work for his earthly father. There's something to say about this. Sure, absolutely. And, but we can say that he could honor his parents if he went off to school. I mean, you know, many people go off to school. There's something that's going on here. Um, and, and what's going on here is that all of us need some level of preparation. And so what we have here is from the age of 12 to the age of 30, Jesus is being prepared. And how is he being prepared? Not by going to a seminary. Not by going to college. By doing what? Hard work. Blisters on his hands. Sweat on his brow. A hurting back. Going to his earthly father. I don't know how to cut this piece of wood. How do you do this, dad? How do I do this, father? Let me hear from you how to do this, daddy. That is his preparation. And what we see here is this. It says in the Word, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Wow. The Son of God is growing in favor and stature before God, which I don't even know what that means. Alan and I were just talking about last night. I was like, I, we were like, I don't know what that really means. But before man, I get it. Before Jesus is being used in his community, he's actually growing in stature in front of his community. His community is looking to him. It's like, this is a guy that has something to offer. This is a guy who is time-tested. He's got character. What he says, he does. He's an upstanding citizen. He's growing in favor. And what I'm saying before you is to be used by the Lord, there is a time of preparation to grow in favor, yes, before God, but also your community. If you are not growing in favor before your boss, you're not fit to preach the gospel. If you have not been able to submit your mouth and your actions to your boss, how are you going to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit? If Jesus had to do it, you may have to do it. To grow in favor before man. So this is unbelievable. I mean, the Messiah is going to learn how to teach, how to preach, how to engage people by first learning how to hold a hammer and deal with the blisters, to deal with the Galilee heat. It's a tremendously humid in the Galilee. Tremendously humid. It's like Florida hot with desert heat. Or Florida humidity with desert heat coming together. It's the Galilee sits in a basin and all the hot air just goes down and there's the lake there and it's humid as can be. And he's sitting there and he's sweating and he's working. He's like, oh, I'm the son of God, yet I have to do all this. Yes, you do. You know, it's amazing. So what kind of skills is he learning there? One important thing is he's not learning any of the establishment junk. Right? He's not learning the bad spiritual practices from the, the rabbis who had wonderful things to say, but also had bad things to say. So he's protected from that. Second thing that he's doing is uh, he's learning by doing. He's doing stuff. He's engaging in doing and working. 
Um, what we see here is yes, he's doing hard work. Blisters, sweat, being tired. Uh, I, I'll be honest, if, if a young person came up to me and said, hey, I want to I be used for the Lord. I want to minister. I want to be a worship leader. I want to be a preacher. I want to be a pastor. I want to be an evangelist. What should I do? I would say, go find a really hard thing to do. Go work. But no, no, no. The Lord has called me to ministry. I get it. Go work. Go work construction, man. Go spend a couple of summers working construction. Go, go be a waiter or a waitress. Like, Having to deal with people's junk, cleaning up after people, dealing with bad tips, dealing with bossy bosses. Do that kind of stuff to prepare oneself. What is Jesus learning in this experience? He's learning patience. He's learning follow through. Oh, wait, dad and I said we're going to do this job. But you see, we said we would do it for this price. And the materials cost a little bit more, didn't it, Dad? Yes, Jesus. All right, Dad. What are we to do? Well, we, we, we said we we're going to do it at this price. What do we do? Well, what would be the honorable? What would be the right thing to do? Well, we have to be men of our word. So I guess we're going to have to take the hit. And I guess we have to just keep building. And those types of lessons of character and following through, we have to get this job done. Those are the type of skills of character that God wants. That's more important if you could read Biblical Hebrew or Koine Greek. Or if you can speak well. Do you have the character to bear the anointing of God in your life? Another skill he's learning is being with ordinary people. Workers that are probably not ordinary. They're probably F-bombing it up. They're probably talking about the, the pretty Greek girl that just moved in from Greece. Hey, did you see the new family from Cyprus? They're pretty good looking, huh, Jesus? Whoa, my eyes shall not look away from the gaze of my father. These are things he's learning. Anyone ever here work construction? Anyone ever work with those type of guys and gals? It's a whole other ball game, man. It's a whole other level of communication usually, Right? All right. And that's Jesus. He's listening to a boss. Sometimes his dad, maybe they were hired out as subcontractors. He's got to learn submission from the annoying taskmaster. It's, how come this isn't at a right angle? He could be like, I'm the son of God. I'm telling you, this door jam is at a right angle. I am the son of God. I am telling you, this is a right angle. And he's got to be like, sure, sir. I'll check it again. I mean, these are the things that are so important. So his, it, it, what we get from this is his teachings resonate with people from his experiences because he does not use all this theological jargon and all this seminary kind of stuff. Uh, but he uses his experiences from building, from farming, from interacting with people, and also seeing the abuses of power. So what do we learn from, from this weird cryptic time period of Jesus' life that very little is, is spoken about? Well, as I said, his parents were devout. So what do we learn from that? Teach your children. It starts with you. Church begins at home. That's where church begins. It needs to begin at home. You need to learn how to be a leader and a priest of your home before you can be used in the kingdom. You have to learn that principle. So, right, we teach our children. We teach the younger ones. We see that they grow up in the ways of the Lord. The thing that we learn from his life is parents are devout, but they're not religious. They could have questioned their son. They could have got down on him like, no, you need to do it this way. Come on. You're, you know, there's all these rumors about you, son. You got to be this way. And they're really quite relaxed, like. They're not religious. They're devout, but they're not religious. They acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit in them. He doesn't have the seminary degree. He doesn't have that proper education which people would look at. But he's learning by his experience. And the experience is coming through essentially his apprenticeship. And his apprenticeship was working with his hands. Asking his father, how do we do these things? 
sweating. Um, and why did he have to do that? Uh, we see this in, uh, in actually in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. This is speaking of Jesus. Therefore, in all things, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You understand, Jesus was tempted. Jesus had to live the life of a human being during that time period. And that meant working, and that meant getting cold, and that meant getting hungry, and getting anxious maybe with what's with, with going on, but he never sinned, right? Why did he have to do that? He had to become like us. He goes on to give this explanation in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What we have here is Jesus had to experience the things of a man as a person, in order to understand what it's like to be a human being. So that when it came time to intercede and go before the Father, he would know what it's like to be a human being. And that experience happened when he was a child, largely. So, we say all of this, um, and that's what we know about Jesus' life. Um, but there's, there's another little piece to this. Uh, up until about the year 1930, everyone thought that Jesus lived in this nice little bucolic area known as Nazareth, which was true. You know, and you think of like what it looked like, and it looked like this. But in 1931, uh, they started doing archaeological, archaeological digs. And they found a town about three miles some say one, but it's, it's more like three. About a three-mile walk from Nazareth, about, about a 70-minute walk. Three miles, if that, from Nazareth is a mega-metropolis known as Sipori. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. They discovered it in 1931, and they're finding all of this archaeology. And it was built, built, during the life of Jesus. Scholars say anyone within a 40-mile radius of Sipori, if you were in the trades, if you were a worker of, 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 by your hand, you absolutely would have been working here. Like, Nazareth is a small, little tiny town. What job is there for a carpenter? So the scholars say, first off, in Greek, carpenter, the, the, the word in Greek is Jesus was a tecton. Tecton is not a carpenter. It's someone who works with his hands, a laborer. So this idea of Jesus like planing wood, newsflash, it's the desert. Right on the edge of the desert. Not a lot of wood. When we talk about a tecton, you're probably actually talking about a stonemason. Someone, is, have you ever do any bricklaying work, Kevin? Lay brick? I mean, your hands are like destroyed, right? You don't have gloves. He's a tecton. He's a stonemason. He works with his hands, doing masonry work, all of that kind of stuff. And the scholars say, like, there's no way you would have enough work in Nazareth for that. There's no way. So what's happening here is you, you would have hired out young men and subcontractors all throughout the Galilee to work in this place called Sipori. It's quite amazing. Uh, if we can uh, actually uh, take a look at that video, show you what Sipori kind of looks like.
Maybe just make it a little louder. the worship team to come forward and we'll explain what's going on with Sipori a little bit. What we have here is no one knew about it because Jesus never goes there in his ministry. And he never calls a disciple from that place in his ministry. It was the New York City of the northern part of Israel. The second most important City in all of Israel after Jerusalem. If you could put the slides back up, please. Okay. And so what's going on here? Because we gave all this kind of stuff, and I'm not trying to infer all these things upon Jesus' life, but things start to kind of connect the dot. Many times we think of Jesus as a little boy living in this little isolated town in the middle of nowhere. Yes, it was like the podunk slum area right outside of one of the, they actually called it the jewel of the Galilee. This beautiful, beautiful place with gymnasiums, with theaters, with prostitutes, with gambling, with Greek influence, with Roman influence, with Jewish influence. A 70-minute walk from his home. Those streets right there as a tecton, as a stonemason, he would have built those actual roads. All the scholars are like, there's no way he wouldn't have. It's the only way to make a living. It's there where Jesus learns Greek. We know he learns Greek because later on in the New Testament, he speaks to Romans. Romans are going to be speaking Aramaic. But Jesus knows Greek. How does he know Greek? Know Greek? Because he's interacting in this pagan town. Jesus, as a young boy, God the Father chose his son to get fashioned and formed to be the greatest teacher the world has ever seen by interacting with the pagans, by interacting with the lost. This is why Jesus has references to Greek philosophy. This is why Jesus has references to Plato and Socrates in the New Testament. This is why Jesus understands the pains of tax collecting. He goes to work in this heathen area, building 
and he's got to walk back home with his dad. And this is when this little boy's mind is being formed and fashioned. Why is it that these people are choosing the ways against God, but our family chooses the ways of God? Daddy, explain this to me. Daddy, why was there this woman, this girl who is talking to you and winking at you and wanting money from you, Dad? Why do those people gamble? Why do those bosses lord it over them? Son, because they're Gentiles and don't do what the Gentiles do, lording over one another. Famous scripture verse. He has to go back to his little town and he's asking these questions, he's doing all this stuff. And so what I feel that the Lord is just saying to us to step into the understanding of Jesus' childhood is that he wasn't insulated. He wasn't living in a vacuum. His parents were not afraid about what is going to happen to him. I deal with a lot of people who, who have such fear over their children. What's going to happen to my kid? What if the world gets to him? God the Father purposed for their son to go into the world and deal with the heathen. And not being afraid. Not being afraid that they're going to be tarnished. Too many of us isolate ourselves. Jesus was not interested in creating his own culture. Christians are all about creating their own culture. It makes me sick. We're own Christian coffee houses. We have our own Christian movies. We have our own Christian places to hang out. We have our own Christian concerts. We have all our own Christian stuff. We even have our own Christian schools. I'll let you guys deal with that yourself. Jesus was not about making a new culture. He was about infiltrating that culture and changing it into the kingdom of his likeness. And that's why he didn't just stay in a small little town in Galilee. That's why he worked every single day and learned amongst the heathen. His heavenly father knew that the Holy Spirit in him would keep him separated from that place. So Jesus works in those places, but he would not allow that culture to leak into his spirit, but allowed it to show him what was wrong with it and to transform it. And I feel that the Lord is just telling us this about Jesus' childhood in closing up today. If you walk away with anything, I, I hope you walk away with this. And I said that this is a little bit more of a teaching day than a preaching day. If you are of the world and in the world, you are one of the lost. You're just lost. Hell's fire lost. So you better come to the altar quick and repent. If you're of the world and you do what the world does and you're living in the world, you better just come up and repent right now. You don't have to wait for the end. Now, if you are not of the world and you are not in the world, you are a modern day Pharisee. I'm telling you, I interact with people like this all the time. One of the biggest warnings I give you know, young pastors is someone comes into your midst and they start talking about all this spiritual stuff. They start quoting all these scriptures to you. They start telling you all about this spiritual God language. You're like, oh man, that is a bing, 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 bing. Red light that this person is whacked. Because all they're doing is trying to show you how religious and how righteous they are and that they know all these things about the Bible and you know, don't come and you're like, oh, here we go. I'd rather have someone coming with blisters on their hand just being like, yo, I read the Bible and I know some stuff more than you, but you can teach me stuff and I can teach you. Great. But the Pharisee, the Pharisee is plaguing the modern church. It's someone who doesn't want to be in the world with people. They're so high and mighty. They're so separate. <laughs> That's not Jesus. Jesus, even as a boy, engaged his community, even learned in the midst of his community. And so the last part, if you are not of the world, but you're living in the world, you're grounded, man. You're not some flaky spiritual wacko that's talking about all this kind of stuff and can't relate to anyone. But if you are in the world, yeah, you work. Yeah, you got blisters on your hands. Yeah, you got stinky feet. Yeah, your back hurts. Yeah, you wake up and things aren't always great. 
And you don't hide like, oh, God is great. He's going to heal me all the time. If you're just a real person living amongst people, but you keep yourself tainted from the world, then you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we got to be that. What does a disciple do? He keeps himself defiled from the evil of the world. How does he do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit, which is so great that that's next week's message. You allow the Holy Spirit to keep your children safe at school. You allow the Holy Spirit to guard your husband's mind when all those things are running around outside. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But we're called to engage the community as Jesus did. Why don't we stand? Jesus. I'm going to ask you a question that you yourself can interpret and, 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 and figure out. When was the last time, when was the last time you proclaimed the gospel to someone? This morning? Last week? Last month? Last year? Last decade? Never? <laughs> Say never, you're probably either lost or a Pharisee. Sorry, I'm just going to be real with you today. You're either lost and you just don't want to share it, because you're like, ah, whatever, I don't even really believe it. Or you're living a Pharisaic way. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to engage anyone. I'm just going to keep it to myself. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans. But as the scriptures continue, but who will hear if no one is there to proclaim? And who will proclaim if no one is sent? And Paul is saying, I'm sending you. Proclaim the gospel. Engage the prostitute. Engage the gambler. Engage the boss. Engage the heathen, engage the Greek, engage the Roman, all the people of the world, engage them with the gospel. Amen? All right. So Lord, we pray that we can be a people that can learn like your son learned. That we would not be afraid of the darkness. We know that when we're in the midst of the darkness, our light burns even brighter. Father, I pray against the Pharisaic spirit, the spirit that just says, ah, I'm going to do my Christian thing, and I'm not going to engage the world. That is a religious spirit that needs to bow down to the glories of the gospel. Father, we pray right now that people be raised up to be evangelists, but I'm not a good speaker, I'm not supposed to be evangelist. Yes, you are. The charge of Messiah is go and proclaim the gospel. Go and heal the sick. Go and speak in new tongues. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So Father, we pray right now that we would be a people who want to go out with the burden of the gospel. That we would go to the Sephoris. That we wouldn't just hang out in our little Nazareth. We wouldn't just hang out in our little church. But we would go out to that Sephori place and we would proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray a release of, uh, off of, of fear. I pray right now that there be a release, a breaking down of fear. People will say, oh, I got to guard, I got to guard, I got to guard my kids. Oh my gosh, I got to guard my wife. I got to guard my husband. I got to guard them because, you know, you know, if the world gets to them, no. There is no such thing as a junior varsity Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's in my daughters is the same Holy Spirit that's in me. And that Holy Spirit will guard their mind, will guard their heart. 
will allow my daughters and your daughters and your sons and maybe my future sons to be able to keep themselves tarnished from the world. We pray right now for a Holy Ghost anointing of protection over our families to engage the loss in college campuses, to engage the loss in the bars, to engage the loss in the, in the, in the, in the, in the coffee shops and at schools, Lord. Lord, we just pray that right now we just download such a love, such a love for you that we cannot contain it anymore. We cannot contain your love and your message anymore. Yes, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hmm. We want a time of prayer. You guys can come forward and we just want to pray for you. So like right now, I mean, we can pray for anything, but right now I just feel like there's an anointing for praying against fear, praying against the anxiety, and praying that you would be released to be a disciple, to go out and to share the good news. If you feel that your tongue is tied, if you feel anxious, like you can't do it, you can't talk to someone, you can't share with them, you just can't do it, come on down and build the anointing of evangelism. It's just going to lay hands on you and release your tongue. So Bill, can you come on down? I just want you to be able to pray for people who, who want their tongue to be released. Come on. It's time for us to see with spiritual eyes. If you see with spiritual eyes and you walk down the street, you will see souls that are being destined for hell if someone does not go and share the gospel with them. That's a reality. Let us have eyes to see that. Love your brother, your neighbor as yourself. If if I could share the gospel to myself, I would when I was lost. You got to share the gospel with your brother if you love him. Not in a religious way. Not the way like the crazy people do it, but with arms wide, with tears in your eyes, the loving shoulder, soft voice. So come down and be released to do that. Amen? Come on. Like, Lord, how come Bristol Church isn't growing? I don't know. Do you guys evangelize? Oh, I don't think we really do. Oh, okay. There you go. Let's be a little practical there. You want to grow this church? You go evangelize. You got to go share. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, I've talked enough today. All right. We have a wonderful week. I think we have some pastries downstairs. I'm sure we do. But if you want some prayers, come on down. Or if you just want to stay in worship and soak in His presence, go for it. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.